Good morning once again. Good it morning. is... <laughs> oh, gosh. I wanted to say it's good to be back. Now I don't know. No, it's, it's, it's so awesome to be back. It really is here in this wonderful community. And with you this morning, singing worship this morning, hearing your voices is so encouraging. So as most of you probably know who get the e-newsletter, uh, we are beginning a new series, Locally Grown, the Fruit of the Spirit. So if you have a Bible with you, you're going to want to open it to Galatians. We're going to go through the first five chapters this morning, a flyover, sort of, to get to our primary verses for uh, this series. And some of you know the, the drill here, but I'm going to just go through it one more time, and that is that uh, typically what we do, what I try to do anyway, is we're, you know, we're going through books of the Bible, we're doing series, we're praying about, okay, what, what, is, what do we need as a church? What do we need here in Squamish? Uh, how do, you know, what do our people need? What do we need as a, as a body, as a church? Uh, to grow in our faith. And uh, sometimes it's like really easy afterwards to go, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I feel or we feel, the elders will talk about it, that we should go here. And so this year, I mean, we were finishing up First Peter about three or four weeks ago, and I'm praying about this, where to go next. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, we've been in the New Testament in First Peter, let's go to the Old Testament. So I started looking around, you know, and praying about, you know, Ruth or a passage in Isaiah, a section or whatever, and various things like that. And Nothing seemed to really stick, and uh, just through a confluence of various blog articles I was reading, books I was reading, podcasts I was listening to, I I just kept coming back to Fruit of the Spirit, the Fruit of the Spirit. So that's how we got here. And and as I started to look at it, honestly, I don't know about you guys, but um, at first praying through it, I'm I'm, I'm looking at it, and and I'm thinking about this this particular, these two verses in Galatians chapter 5 where we're going to get to at the, by the end today, uh, where Paul just drops it in there. And it seems like it's there, and it's like, okay, where did that come from? As I think you're going to see. Like, pa- Paul, why did you drop the fruit of the Spirit in at that point in your letter? And so as I was looking at it, I honestly had to ask myself, like, what do I know about the fruit of the Spirit? Like, I'm a pastor. I've preached through the book of Galatians as we're going to talk about this morning. So yeah, we've been through it, but it's typically a flyby. You go through the passage, you quote the scripture, you give a few little comments about what it looks like, and we don't go terribly deep into it. So I'm hoping through this series what you're going to find, because we're going to do this over 10 weeks. And some of you are like, okay, Glenn, that's almost as long as First Peter. I understand. I understand. It's based on two verses, but we're going to be in many other areas of scripture to see that. So what I also find very interesting is that, as you will remember, yes, we were in First Peter uh, three weeks ago. We finished that. It took us 15 weeks to go through that, and very uh, you know, challenging in many ways. But well, you'll remember from that series that Peter's intention, the reason why Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, right, modern-day Turkey, was because he had received reports, and he was concerned about them. He was concerned about the pressure they were feeling in their area, and so he wrote a letter to them. But interesting, as again, as I was preparing for this, Paul's now writing, around the same time actually, to uh, the people in one of the provinces in Asia Minor, go figure, Galatia. But there's different emphasis here, which is I find really, really interesting as you look at it. And so, whereas Peter's primary reason, as we saw going through that series, for writing to the churches in Asia Minor is because he knew he knew one thing for certain, and that is, is that they were under pressure. 
They were experiencing uh, persecution, fiery trials. And the reason why they were experiencing these things was for one very simple reason, just because they were Christians, just because they had left their pagan Gentile lifestyle and become followers of Jesus Christ, and they were fulfilling, each one of them, their obedience towards the word of God. They were like, no, no, this is what the word of God says, and this is what, therefore, we need to believe, and this is how then we should live. And for that, they were being persecuted. And so, yeah, the, the, the main emphasis that Peter wanted to leave them with is like, okay, I know this is happening to you. I know that. It's happening here in Rome, too. But the reason why I'm writing this to you is, is I, I want you to know how, as a Christian, you should respond to that. Not with fiery darts on Twitter, right? Or any other platform. No, don't, don't, because you're being slandered and reviled, literally, don't repay evil with evil. Instead, you need to respond in such a way that you, you recognize whom it is you are actually serving and whom you actually represent, who is Jesus Christ. And then you need to respond in love. Right, okay. That was a really interesting lesson, I think, that we all learned from Peter because he went on and on about it for a bit there. Paul's approach is crazy. It's, it's so interestingly different. And yet he's writing into one of the provinces that Peter was also writing to, and it's, it's a different emphasis. And his tact is really quite different. He's Paul, after all, although we saw Peter being really direct in many, many ways. And so before we get to our primary verses uh, for today, for the series, which is in chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, I feel we need to, we need to have a look at the context of Galatians, what Paul's writing into and why. And um, yeah, this week and next then are going to serve more or less as an introduction, and then we're going to get into the nine specific facets or character traits that are the fruit of the Spirit. And so before we go any further, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for today. I just want to thank you, Lord, for, uh, gosh, Lord, for how much you love us, how much you, uh, you oversee us, you, you're watching everything that's going on, not to, not to pick us apart or punish us, but to bless us, to provide for us, to care for us. And so I just want to thank you for our church, for uh, the members of our church who are, Lord, faithfully trying to live out the gospel in this community. And Lord, we saw that on display yesterday at Rick's uh, memorial. And so, Lord, I just pray. I pray for all of us here today. I pray, Holy Spirit, since you're the one who is the producer of this fruit, I pray through the things that you're showing me and through your words and the words of Paul and others that we will look at over these next 10 weeks, that you would, you would reveal this truth to us in a deeper and deeper way so that we can produce fruit, so that we can emulate the character traits of you, Holy Spirit, of you, Heavenly Father, and of you, Lord Jesus, to this community and this world. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So if you begin with me in chapter 1 of Galatians, we're going to do a flyover here this morning, so don't worry. It's not going to be a verse by verse of five chapters because there is lunch. What, at one? Right. It's amazing. Paul starts off with an introduction in the first few verses of who he is. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle, right? And, and, and he also mentions his authority. 
And what he wants people to know who he's writing to is my authority is not found in me as a man or as an ex-Pharisee or a, you know, a guy who's got an MDiv. No, my authority is in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the one who has revealed this to me. I'm speaking under his authority to you and I'm writing to you. And then he gets right at it in verse 6. Let me put that on screen for you because it's, it's a bit astonishing, really. And that's actually what he says. Well, let's put this on. There we go. Here we are. He actually says these words. This, like, again, I said this in First Peter. Please see this picture. This letter has been delivered to the churches in Galatia, and it's being read publicly by one of the elders of the church. And Paul says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so as a church, uh, I believe it was in 2017, we went through this particular letter for 24 weeks. It's such a great letter. And I would encourage you that as we start this series, and I know many of you are doing the life journaling and reading a lot every morning, which is awesome. Read through the book of Galatians at least once in the next week or two because it will give you a lot of food for thought about what we're talking about. It's a great book. And we learned at that time what was this, for Paul anyway, this was a crucial point in the history of the church. Paul recognized that what was going on in Galatia was an absolutely crucial point in the history of the church. And something had to be said. Something had to be said and something had to be done. For Paul, and you, we all know this from 1 Corinthians 15, that there's one thing that is of first importance. Right? And this is something he doesn't want them to forget. It's the gospel. But it's the true gospel, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, life, death, burial, resurrection, in your place and for your sins. Amen. There's, there's not much more to it. There's lots of other things related to it that we'll look at this morning. But that was the main thing. And so it, it's amazing what we see here. I love this. He says, it, it, it's kind of, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I can be a little sarcastic. But is Paul not being a little sarcastic when he says this here? Look at it. He goes, like there is another gospel. Right? He, he's being sarcastic. He's suggesting, guys, there is, there's only one gospel. There's no other gospel. And so, yeah, that's kind of my paraphrase of it. But so what's this all about? Well, first of all, like many of the believers in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to, most of the men and women who were in these churches in Galatia are previously pagan Gentiles. Very few of them are from the Jewish faith. So they haven't had a lot of influence in their hearing of the gospel about the Old Testament and some of the things that these people were bringing in this another gospel that we'll see. And they came to their faith in Christ simply by hearing the gospel, hearing about the cross. And that was good enough. That was like, amen. What do I need to do? Well, repent and be baptized, etc. We all know those things. So they heard the pure and true gospel, which is that Jesus did it all. That was the key point that they needed to hear and Paul wanted them to know. Jesus did what the law could not do for us. For anyone, and, and he spends much of Galatians making that point to them. We'll only look at some of the highlights. The law of God that he gave to, that God gave to the people of Israel, 
uh, could not do that for them or for anyone. And, and really, it had one primary purpose that in the Old Testament, many people missed. The, the, the purpose in the Old Testament wasn't that, listen, these are the rules and regs, and if you do these rules and regs and you do them really well, you're in. The point of the law in the Old Testament was to prove to the men and women of Israel and to you and I today, you can't keep the law. We, we don't have it in us to be perfect and to perfectly keep the law. And the point of the Old Testament teaching was is if you break one commandment, you're back to square one. You've broken the, them all. So that's why there was sacrifices for atonement and various things like that. So salvation in Jesus Paul has been teaching them, and when he gave them the gospel, it was all about grace. It was all about something that you and I don't deserve, called unmerited favor or grace, right? Um, you do not do anything, we do not do anything to save ourselves. And so that's the message they would have heard. And that's the message as pagan Gentiles, when they heard that, they were like, I mean, they had their own virtues and their own you know, merit, meritocracy that they had to live to to be considered good citizens, of Galatia, of Rome, or wherever. But this was like, hold on. To be forgiven by God, to be accepted by God, to, to, to be you know, one of his children and invited into his kingdom, I just need to repent and believe and trust the truth about Jesus? I get it. Amen. It's not about me having to work my way up. And so for the bottom line for them was is that, and it's the same for you and I here today, we just need to respond in faith and believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. It's beautiful, incredibly beautiful. So Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against sin. And it also was satisfactory to God because Jesus lived a sinless life, perfect and sinless life, as we will see, fully, fully, embracing and living out the fruit of the Spirit in his life perfectly and having kept the law perfectly throughout his earthly life. And therefore, his sacrifice on the cross in your place and for your sins and my sins was acceptable to God because he was perfect. So while the Galatians, they heard that and thousands of them actually responded. Thousands came to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the word by Paul and many others in that day. Thousands. The church was exploding. It was a really, really wonderful thing. And now, at this point in history, Paul's hearing something. Reports are getting back to him. What we commonly call today Judaizers, Jewish men primarily, were coming from Jerusalem into Galatia, and they were bringing this other gospel to these believers in Galatia. And they, some of them thought, were Christians. They may, in fact, have been Christians. And they would, of course, be in the hearing of the reading of this letter on that day too, right? And so here we are. These people have arrived, and they're basically saying this to the people in Galatia. Bottom line is this. Yes, believe in Jesus. Yes, of course, believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah. We acknowledge that. However, to be a true Christian, you must also follow the law. You must also be men, circumcised. That's a fun one, right? You must follow the law, too. Well, again, commonly today, we call that the Jesus plus gospel because that's not the gospel. And so this was the mark in history, the point in history. In fact, 
Paul and Barnabas had to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, which was kind of like the denominational head office, and get this sorted out. It was a big deal. And they got it sorted out, which is why we have this letter and why it's so important for us to understand this. Now, you might look back at that and go, well, okay, we don't have Judaizers coming into the Rock Church, do we? No, I hope not. I sure hope not. But we still practice this in the church in North America today, in the church of the world today. A very simple example, I like to give this one. I love a translation of the Bible called the King James Version. I really do love it. I don't preach from it anymore because the thoueth, willeth, and wonteth, it causes me to, the common language that we're using is the ESV translation. But there are churches in, in North America that, and in the world that will tell you that, yes, you can be a Christian, but you can only read and preach from that particular translation of the Bible. That's Jesus' and. There, there are many other examples of that. Some of you know what they might look like. You can talk about that in community. What might be some of those other examples where we're making our faith about Jesus, but also something else? So, for our purposes then this morning, let me highlight his opening words again this way. Peter is essentially saying this. I am astonished. I, I can hardly believe this is happening. Guys, I, I can hardly believe having seen the way that you started, how you came to faith, how the Holy Spirit just blossomed in your lives from the very moment that you're buying into this stuff. This is is really shocking to him. You're actually believing it. Then he adds a bit of a dagger, I think, I would suggest. When he says these words, you are deserting him. Well, who's he talking about? I think commonly we think, well, you're deserting Christ. But it, it goes on in that text to say, right? Deserting him who called you, right? In the grace of Christ. And you are turning, right? He's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. You're, you're turning from your reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit in you to grow you. That's who you're deserting. So I, I want to suggest that probably stung. Because some of them are going, oh, oh, wow, hold on. I really do get that. It's important for us to see this at this point. He's also adding here, I, I would think, from reports he's received, that they are turning. See, this is not a letter where he's going, look at. I, I think these guys might show up on your doorstep because I've heard they've showed up somewhere else before, that they might show up and, and, and you might listen to them and start turning from the one true gospel and to their distorted views. But no, 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 no. He's writing because he has heard that some of them have already and are agreeing with these Judaism and bringing it into the church and wanting to make the Jesus and gospel a reality. And so this is not Paul exhorting them to be on guard. No, he's telling them that he knows that some of them have already turned. He concludes what these false teachers are introducing is a distortion of the gospel. This this word in the Greek, again, it's great. I love the language, the original languages, but the idea of distort is to blur is to like, take the camera and put me out of focus, which Daryl probably wants to do right about now. Right? It, it's to blur, to take it out of focus. Take what out of focus? Well, we're going to see. So Paul's going to use the next few chapters to continue this point, to unpack this some more. But then he gets to the beginning of chapter 3, and look what, what he says there. He says, again, he's back to this interesting language. language. Oh, foolish Galatians. Okay, Paul. 
You just told us you were astonished with us, and now we're foolish? Who has bewitched you? That's another really strong word. It was, look, look at this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. <laughs> Sarcastic. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I, I know I'm leaning on that sarcasm a little bit. Paul doesn't mean to be mean. Of course he doesn't. But he's being bold and he's being very direct. Why? Because this is really crucial for the church in those days, but also for all of them individually as they grow in their faith. So after his opening astonishment, Paul says, as I mentioned, he spends the next four chapters unpacking for them how ludicrous it is, listen, how ludicrous it is to listen, let alone believe what these men are teaching. And so referring to the true gospel, Paul says, look, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, you and I hear that today. Not, maybe some of them did, but I don't think they heard it the way we did. Some of us today would be going, hold on. How is that possible? These churches weren't planted until 10 to 15 years after Jesus ascended. They didn't see Jesus crucified. It's like three to five years after Paul planted these churches. So what's going on here? What is he saying? Well, it's, it's a very interesting word. That word portray, portrayed, again, in the Greek language, is, is the key word. It's a key word. And some of you are just going to love this because you know my background, right? But it's literally the word where we get the word advertising. Sorry, just, but it's true, right? That's the word. And so they would have heard that. And what, what is that meaning? What is that saying? Well, the key word is portrayed, as they said, in the original Greek. The connotation is advertised. It's what they would have understood as a bulletin posted on a wall somewhere or as, uh, pardon me, as a poster, a billboard, or even a property for sale, right? And so Paul is saying that the first thing and the most important thing that he and the other disciples did in their midst was they portrayed, they advertised, they proclaimed the cross. Not fancy apologetics, which are great. Apologetics are good but they proclaimed and portrayed vividly and graphically the cross of Christ. And that's what, like in Acts 2, which we will see in a second, cut them to the heart. They cut them to the heart. There's a phrase that I used repeatedly in the series in Galatians, and I'll just repeat it for you today. It was this. The key to living by faith is keeping the cross in your rearview mirror. Let me say that again. The key to living by faith is keeping the cross in our rear view mirrors. So again, in reference to the Holy Spirit, look what Paul says here. He, Paul asks, actually. He says this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So, so Paul reminds them of this, that same thing that happens for us if we are in Christ, when we experience this. When they received the Holy Spirit, 
something significant happened or should have. It should be noticeable, right? But he would also have told them about Peter's sermon. Remember his sermon in Acts chapter 2, you know, same guy who denied Jesus three times. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in amazing power. And he's all of a sudden this great preacher and he proclaims the cross. And twice he says, you crucified him, you crucified him. And they are literally cut to the heart. Thousands of them are hearing this sermon by Peter and they turn to Peter and they go, brother, what are we going to do? What do we do? You've preached the cross. We believe it. Well, Peter said these words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The, the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised back in John 15, 16, 17, he, he promised, 14 as well, uh, that the Father and he would send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us when he leaves. So back in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul is reminding them and us that, look, we received, you received the Holy Spirit by and through the grace of God alone. Not by any works. I was raised Catholic. You guys all know the story. Or if you were raised Catholic, you know the story. Boy, there was a lot of works. There was a lot of going to confession for Glenn Davies, the boy. Okay? There really was. Because it was all about works. It was all about, you know, I had to work my way up to be accepted by God and to get over the bar so that when I die, you know, I'm forgiven. And boy, if I mess up, oh gosh, I can, now I've got to do more work to get back into God's good graces. It's not the gospel. Thankfully, right? So he's reminding them it's not by works of any kind, but by hearing with faith the proclamation of the cross and trusting it and believing it for your life. So again, in his astonishment, he's still asking, and the little, little Greek, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you, is more like this. Are you so dumb? Stupid is an actually good translation. I... I know, but just the messenger here, okay? It's what the word implies. That after, listen, after experiencing that grace, after you experience that, that having begun your life of faith and your walk with Christ in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, are you honestly thinking that, listen, you will be perfected, sanctified by your own effort? Hmm. So that's a good question, isn't it? So let's hold on and just think about what that looks like for you and I here today. This, this is the reason, friends, I, I want to suggest to you why the false teachers actually got their attention and why that kind of false teaching can still get our attention today. And it is this. When you and I receive the Holy Spirit, there, there is, there should be, a dramatic event happen. I'm not talking about angels singing and, you know, a flood of light on you or whatever. But I remember the night that I prayed in Toronto at 23 years of age. I remember that night. I remember confessing every sin that I ever committed. Because, <laughs> again, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not Catholic anymore. So I felt I needed to do that, including my neighbor's window who I broke, that I broke with a baseball that I lied about. But I also remember this. I remember an emotion coming over me uh, where I cried all night for hours. And, and I remember just a, a, a sense of warmth 
I remember a sense of forgiveness. The old Glenn died that night. I know that. And that's, listen, that's what we need to be reminded of. When you and I receive, there should be this, this event. We know we've received this remarkable gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit. And there's at least a momentary, you know, at least one night. Hopefully it lasts a week, a month, and maybe years. But then, for any of you who have been a Christian as long as I have, well, things can wane, right? Where, where's God? Like, what just happened? Why did I lose that job? Why, why doesn't that girl want to go out with me anymore? Why this? Why that? Right? We can get to that point in our lives where, you know, it's just we, the, the initial zeal and vigor for the Lord, for his word, for the church can begin to wane. And why? Well, Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament writers will tell us repeatedly because of the desires of the flesh and the desires of this world. They can just become too attractive. So this is clearly why the false teachers' appeals to the works of the law flesh were so enticing. They, they would have thought, many of them in that day would have thought, okay, yes, okay, look, man, you're right. I have fallen short. In the last five, ten years of my Christian walk, yeah, I've, that experience is kind of, I don't feel it the same way anymore. And, and, and maybe that's because I've been sinning again and again and again. And, and you know, maybe I've got to do something about that in order to get back into God's good graces. So, you know, what you're preaching, you Judaizer guys, this is making sense to me. Right. I need to, I need to keep the law. I need to do this. I need to read my Bible every morning religiously and not for God. <laughs> and just hearing from him. I, I, I need to go to church more often. That's a good thing, by the way. I need to give or give more. Also a good thing. I need to serve. Now, there's a novel idea. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But listen, if those things become, and the reason why you or I do them is because, well, that loving feeling has kind of waned and we're trying to get back into God's good graces and we think that's what we need to do to get there, that's another gospel. That's not the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of this doing, Paul, Paul wants us to understand, he really wants us to understand this, are works of the flesh that, look, do not save us. They did not save us in the first place. And look again, they cannot perfect you or me. So what literally is that word perfect here in the scripture? It's the word sanctify, right? So look, we've been repeating this over and over in the Rock Church. And again, like my grade eight, grade school teacher, Mrs. Nevin, used to say, repetition, repetition, Mr. Davies. That's how we learn things or how we at least remember them. And so we've been going through this for years, and I keep repeating this, and it's going to be repeated again this morning. Your salvation, my salvation, our salvation is not a one-time event. It's not. Okay? A one-time event did happen for me at 23 years of age, and for the rest of you in this room at some point, I certainly do expect and hope. And so we learn that salvation is a process that begins with our initial repentance and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it is much, much more. So the way we've been putting it, and I like to put it, is this. First, we are saved from the penalty of sin. There is a penalty for our sin. For everyone's sin, there's a penalty. 
We are saved from the penalty of our sin by the work of Christ on the cross in our place for our sins. That is called our justification. We are justified before God because of what Jesus has done, and you are saved. But from that point on, we are being saved, right? If you read through Acts 2, 42, actually to 47, the writer of Acts, Luke says, and God added daily to the church those who were being saved. Me- meaning there's, there's an ongoing process going on here. So secondly, during the rest of our Christian life, we are being saved, listen, perfected from the power and saved from the power of sin that still wars against us, our old sinful nature, our flesh in this life today. And that is called our sanctification. And we're going to learn a lot more about that next Sunday. Finally, one day, and this is the day that we're all, I'm sure, looking forward to, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. So we've got our justification, our sanctification, and one day, our glorification. When we're in, in Christ, it's going to be a glorious day. Amen? There's no sin. We're perfect. We're made perfect. We don't sin. It's not there. It's not present. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul then says, into chapter 5, we're almost there, kids. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you actually really do want to do. That's great. So Paul answers his rhetorical and, yes, maybe sarcastic questions previously here in verses 16 and 17. And he gives them clear instruction. He says, but I say. I, I love this, actually, because this is not one of those do as I say but not as I do kind of statements. Because those, those, are, those are not good, are they? You read the stories of Paul and his life. This is a man who walked with the Spirit. Amen. This is a man who emulated the fruit of the Spirit. Was he perfect? No. But he walked with the Spirit. So he says, walk then with the Spirit. When? Occasionally? Obviously not. Every moment, every day. And the result, if you do that, you will not gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. The key then to putting to death our old sinful nature, our flesh, by the way, is not talking about this thing here called the, the body that is dying and decaying. Trust me. Trust me. I know. Right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about our old sinful nature. That's what they're talking about here. That's what the scripture means by that. Is walking out our lives in the power with the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. We need him. And he's available to us. He's in us. His his next statement is so very clear, but so easy just to nod as people can do with chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 and, and give passing assent to without it actually changing us. It's like what Peter said in the last chapter of 1 Peter. He said, God opposes the proud. Remember that? He is against those who are haughty in spirit and proud. Paul's saying the same thing, however, in a twofold manner. He's saying this, the desires of the flesh, look, are against in opposition to the Spirit. They're battling against the Spirit. 
And when that happens, the ba- it's not that the, the, the spirit can't just, the spirit's like, okay, I'll back away. That's how we lose that loving feeling. It's a war that's going on. And then he says, in contrast, the desires of the spirit are against in the opposition to the flesh. So hold on a sec. He, he is actually, yes, in a battle. These are in a fight to the death or life with each other. And in the case of the flesh, keeping us from doing the things that we ought to do and actually want to do. If you're in Christ, you know you really do want this, but we battle. So the key to note here, and I love this, is this. Note that the Holy Spirit's desires are against the flesh, and that means, listen, they're for you. They're f- he has desires, very strong desires, and his desires are for you and for me. But as I show, as I, anyway, as we go on to this, I just hope you're going to see that this is really good news. The Holy Spirit desires for you and I are, what could they be? Well, as we're going to see next Sunday and every Sunday throughout this series, that we bear much fruit. That's his primary desire for you in this life, that you bear much fruit. And that's why Paul now drops these lovely two verses into all that when he says this. But, this but is so important. Like, this is five chapters. He's like, okay, now here's my point. But, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. So this is the first and only time in the letter that Peter mentions the word fruit. That's significant. If you read a a number of commentators, especially liberal commentators, they're going to say, yeah, this was dropped in. Like, it actually doesn't fit. It's, how could it possibly... It, fruit. Where did fruit come from? It's a good question. That's a really good question. But I hope to show you through this series that that's completely untrue. It's not the case at all. These two verses are, in fact, the hinge of the letter and they're the hinge in the church in that day. They are the reason and, and the, the, they, they are the rebuttal to the false teaching, to the distortions of the gospel that these men were trying to bring into the church. So two factions arose at this time, and they're alive and well today in the church, sadly. Two factions arose at that time, those who promote legalism. Anybody heard of those guys? Legalists? Nobody likes them, right? Unless you're a legalist. And then there's also the other people who are promoters of license. And this is what was going on in this this day. Some of the legalists, the Judaizers, are going, look, you know, like there's got to be some rules and regs here. Because these people who are grace alone, grace alone, grace alone, they're like, well, we can continue to sin. We can continue to live in the flesh. And it's okay because Jesus will forgive us. We're forgiven. We, we, we can have license. They're both wrong. <laughs> they're absolutely both wrong. And in error, and Paul's teaching here on the fruit of the Spirit is the heart of the Christian life, the Christian walk, and the Christian ministry. So there we have it, right? I just, we just read the verses. You got it? You, you know exactly what this means and what it's all about, right? The Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, we see it here, is, are these nine wonderful, beautiful, in fact, character traits that every Christian should have. Marvelous. Okay, move on, preacher. I got it. I'll, I'll, remember, I'll, I'll, I'll make a bumper sticker. 
I'll put it on my fridge, whatever. I'll, I'll read it every day. Actually, not a bad idea. So I'm not sure, though. Because I, I just speak for myself. When I started thinking about this and preparing for the series and thinking that is this even a series, right? The first question I had to, actually the thing, first thing I had to humbly admit is, I have not, I know this is a shock for you, I'm your pastor, but I have not been perfected in all of these character traits yet. Shoot, I can barely be perfected for two or three days in a few of them. Anybody? I'm not there yet. And so I think to myself, well, what's going on here? should probably spend some more time. And, then that, and that's exactly, well, the next question I ask myself, well, then how, in fact, are they attained, really? How are they attained and absorbed and therefore always part of my walk and my life? That's why I felt it was important for us to do this series. And that's why I believe over the next nine, ten weeks, <laughs> nine more weeks, Man, I think as we go deep into each one of these, you're going to just see some amazing, amazing things about who God is, who our Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit actually are. So it's a little difficult, and I want to just close with a couple of things, but you know, people try to develop pictures for us to understand certain things, like the Trinity, right? You ever heard about the three-leaf clover illustration of the Trinity? Yeah, well, like there's one, one branch, but there's, th- you know, it's, that's one of the best that people come up with, you know, a water, steam, etc. Like to try to explain the Trinity, none of them work. And and one of the the ways that people try to explain the fruit of the spirit is, and our graphic did a little bit. It was it's an awesome graphic, but is you know like you know, the the show you a big tree with a big trunk and many many branches coming in off it. And what's growing at the end of those branches on every one of those trees? Yeah. Nine different kinds of varieties of fruit, right? I mean, you're, you're going to see on that particular, you're going to see like everything like from oranges, apples, papayas, even watermelons, right? I've seen them with watermelons hanging off of a tree. Now, I just, as a preacher, I do not know how to illustrate a watermelon. Do you? I can't. doesn't make any sense, does it? So what is it talking about? And, and let me ask you this. We'll see this more clearly next week. Are they necessarily different kinds of fruit like that? Are they? It's going to be interesting. So finally, as we conclude this morning, let's at least leave, let me leave you with these few points about this, these two verses, and then we'll close. First, the fruit is singular. You see that, right? It's not fruits. I did a search about sermon series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't find too many. I found one-off messages, but I actually saw graphics that said, the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm like, who's preaching this sermon? It's singular, a singular fruit. That then points us to the fact that there's a producer, right? Who is, of course, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who produces these traits in us that again points to the key, the secret that we will learn about next Sunday. This fruit, by the way, is his. It's his fruit. We learn that also right here from this. It's his. This is who he is. All of these but one are about who he is. But one. And so we're also going to see next week, it involves the Godhead. So that's your teaser. 
While I was doing prep for the series, I, I, I read a, a comment about the late John Stott, who died in 2011, a wonderful pastor, author, and theologian. He apparently prayed a prayer every morning before he lifted his head off of his pillow, which I find amazing. In memoirs of his life, people who knew him really well, who watched him throughout his ministry as a preacher, as a pastor, as an author, writer, theologian, they commented that they had never met in their lives anyone who was more Christ-like than John Stott. That's a pretty big compliment, isn't it? It's incredible. And, and most of them said that it was clear to them that God answered a part of his prayer, that the Holy Spirit had fully ripened his fruit in this man. And so really that's what it's all about. What the Spirit of God does above all is to make those who put their faith and trust in Jesus to become more and more like the Jesus they love and trust and follow. In fact, we could say that the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, maybe but one, is a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Since Jesus himself was filled with the Spirit of God, it is Jesus who dwells within us through the Spirit. Therefore, the more that we are filled with God's Spirit, the more we become like who? Jesus. That's the goal. Let me leave you this morning with John Stott's prayer. Three simple verses. First, he said this. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. You're my father. I'm your child. Secondly, Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told us we need to do? And then he said this. He prayed this. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'll post this prayer online for you. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for again today. Thank you for anointing and appointing a day where we would gather together and uh, that it would you be your choice, Holy Spirit, that we would, we would want to dive deep into your fruit, who you are, and why it is so crucially important for our walk and our faith and our very joy and our very lives. So, yeah, like John Stott's prayer, Holy Spirit, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here this morning and those watching online, for all of us, that you would ripen your fruit in us. Man, do we need this. We need this more than anything else. This be our testimony every day to those who do not know you, Lord Jesus, is that we be people of this kind of fruit. So I want to thank you for what you're going to do. I thank you for, yeah, just the rest of this morning's worship. And uh, as we respond in worship with communion this morning, I just thank you, Lord. Discuss your blessings in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.